0: You've heard me talk about Morning Kick, used by former karate champion Chuck Norris. It's a daily drink from Roundhouse Provisions that combines ultra-potent greens like spirulina and kale with probiotics, prebiotics, collagen, and even ashwagandha. Just mix with water, stir, and enjoy. Unlike other green drinks out there, this one tastes similar to strawberry lemonade, and I enjoy it. I know I don't eat as many vegetables as I should, but Morning Kick has helped me make up for that, and I feel great. I have more energy and better digestion. It's an easy part of my morning routine. My wife started taking it as well. Go to roundhouseprovisions.com forward slash Harris for up to 44% off your regular priced order. Plus, every purchase is backed by a 90-day money-back guarantee. So if you want to experience smoother digestion, a boost of energy, and just an overall healthier body, then go to roundhouseprovisions.com forward slash Harris
1: today. We are live. On the Conversations That Matter podcast, here to talk about liberalism once again. This is part five of our series, and when I say "our," I mean myself, Ben Crenshaw, and Timon Klein. Hey guys, hey John, thanks for uh, being here. Hey John, again. thanks for all having
2: right. us. Keeping this yeah. going. This is this is it.
1: Despite all the uh, all the things in our personal lives, um, I know Ben, you were saying like you have all these construction projects and stuff, which is. It's good for your Christian nationalist, you know, mm-hmm. uh, you grow, grow muscles and that kind of thing. But, uh, you know, the country, the country, country. scholar. That's <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And it's hunting season here. I'm sure it's hunting season there too. But yeah. uh, I was in the woods earlier today, freezing my toes <laughs> off. I saw nothing except squirrels everywhere. <laughs> Very <laughs> annoying. But uh anyway, we all have our different things we're doing. But th- this is something that um we've been talking about for, what, like five weeks, maybe. I don't even know. Maybe a little longer than that. And yeah. um, lots of people have emailed me questions or said they're, they're going to be here to ask questions. So we're going to keep it fluid tonight. Um, Timon and Ben are here to answer any of the questions you have. And if there's any hate or any problems with previous things that were said, it is all Timon's fault. And you can ask. <laughs> it's 100% <laughs> correct. Well, um, let, let's go to uh, Matt Baruch. Matt barouche has been waiting. He's uh, in the channel right now. He has a question. Hey Matt, can you hear me?
3: Yeah, I can hear you. Yeah, and it, it's Borish, by the way. That's that's. Yeah, I,
1: I think I knew that because Matt at the retreat. Sorry about that.
3: No, 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 problem. No problem. One out of a thousand people spell it. One out of a hundred people say it. So Borish, <laughs> That's correct. I mean
1: Borish. Okay, got it.
3: It's East Prussian. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah my my question my question for you guys is is has to do with economics because um, I've I've been listening to the discussion and uh when i was in college i was i was a big free trader kind of a classical liberal guy i was really in support of dafta and i was just listening to this and my question for you for you guys is in a non-liberal um non-classical liberal society how does economic mobility or economic opportunity work because it seems like in a in before world war ii um there was didn't seem to be much of a middle class in the United States, at least, or even in, in like, the, the uh, European aristocratic countries. And I'm just wondering how somebody can, you know, get get ahead economically in that type of situation when there isn't uh, free trade or a lot of oppert- entrepreneurial opportunities um, that, say, a classical liberal society with, with globalism w- would allow. That's basically my question.
2: I mean, my... My basic view on this, Matt, is I'd call it uh, economic nationalism. That the econo- you know, the economic powerhouse of a society is uh, subjected or it's um, subjugated underneath the kind of the political uh, ends of the people as a community. So um, they have to be controlled and channeled by um, ends outside themselves. So this is where you have something like. The confusion between um, economic value and virtue. So um, you know that 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 uh, there's a subjective value evaluation of something in society, a consumer good, precisely because of supply and consumer um, you know wishes that drives the uh, demand and supply doesn't mean that it's good. So you have to start with a you know a moral theory, a political theory that. Um, it judges and evaluates like well just because people want to consume a lot of pornography doesn't mean that you know that should be allowed Now, in terms of economic mobility you know you go back to the early Whigs and the 19th century you find basically this economic protectionism tariffs um, you know a specie or money that is unique to America and, and uh, you know internal improvements uh, you know trade with other countries that is favorable to the United States and helped infancy uh, industries in America. All of that actually went into like creating flourishing industries and the creation eventually of a middle-class and economic mobility, but it was oriented and directed nationally toward the people themselves. It didn't mean you had to give up things like free trade per se, but, uh, or exchange of money and goods and and production and consumption. But all of that has to be kind of recalculated within a, I would say, like a nationalist ethos or teleology that's clearly anti-global, um, at least anti-global in the sense that it's it's uh, you know it's not going to put money and profits over the good of the people collectively. So I think I I think that you can have some of those quote unquote classical liberal elements, um, but they have they can't become You know the end, end all and be all of a society. They, they basically what's happened in America is that uh, there's been a a flip of who rules the roost between politics and economics. Politics has been uh, sublimated, and like an economic way of doing life has has uh, kind of taken over, and that's changed the character of the people, their relationship to each other and the outside world. Um, and so forth. So that's that's a little bit of an answer. Much more could be said. I don't know, time and if you've got anything
4: you want to add. Sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I agree with Ben in terms of the. Um, well, I guess, I guess you could. So I, I agree with everything Ben's saying. But that you could say there's two questions kind of involved. One is the scope of um, economic freedom, we might say. So if in, in ter- a more a more illiberal view. Um, you know, that's, that's kind of like there's no there's no archetype of, of like what the liberal view is, but it's something, you know, behind or, or prior to the way we conduct ourselves now. And so we just look at a at an older American view, um, such so as the American system, which basically made us, you know, prosperous enough to then step onto the world stage um, and, and dominate for a while. You know, it's it's more of a protectionist view, as Ben said, It's it certainly has national interest in in view with in terms of manufacturing um, and uh, trade um, as a country. But then, you know, you're kind of Matt, you're kind of getting at also the uh, individual level or, you know, how we conduct our domestic economy. So you could have a more protectionist view, nationalist view in terms of delegation of uh, big resources and direction of companies that are that are major, you know, that, that produce significant. Um, goods and instead of farming out either their production or or the goods themselves you know we direct them towards things that are in the national interest but <clears throat> at the at the more domestic level sort of i don't think there's anything wrong with having an idea of you know some kind of free exchange we might say and self-determination um of, of economically um but it's always like a um you know, it's always kind of where do you want to draw the lines? Because, of course, we've never had anything that is just total free exchange or free a free economy. There's always regulation, um, and in fact, introduced by many, you know, many Reaganites themselves. So it's like the you know, what are what are we talking about? It's it's. And so that is where I think also. So Ben was talking about the ends based direction of of uh you know, economy towards these higher goods. There's also the question just politically, it, it always needs to determine this. What are the, what kind of limitations are we comfortable with and which ones are we not with? And that requires political process. And to pretend that it's sort of an algorithmic uh, thing, the the economy that is, I think is a liberal view and it's not actually true. And so that would be a illiberal critique to say the thing, the bill of goods you're selling is not actually real. Uh, There is no such thing. And so what we need to do is just be more explicit and honest about the political process as well, where we determine what are, what are we good with? What are we not good with? Um, So that's, I mean, I'm just, I'm just throwing some more things um, on top of what Ben was saying. Um, Yeah. uh, I'll just up there. So I don't ramble.
2: To add like a controversial issue, you could say like, well, should we let women work in the public sphere? So you could, you could say an illiberal view A pre-liberal view would return to a kind of social hierarchy, which would say, Mm -hmm. depending upon, you know, your wealth or your status or your gender or something like this, you kind of can only rise so far, and no further. And I'm not personally, I don't think that, um, you know, a future America that's post-liberal or returns to a pre-liberal has to necessarily lock in some kind of feudal social hierarchy as it was in the past, per se. But I think we have to we have to be willing to entertain, you know, why people did things in the past the way they did. And maybe a return to that can can be good. And so, like, take take, uh, you know, like women serving in the military or something like that. A a woman might want to have that kind of economic or social or career opportunity. and You could say, well, putting up barriers to entry is discrimination. You know, it's employment discrimination or it's sexist or could be racist or something like that. And that would be a kind of dominant liberal value that would kind of, you know, destroy every other counter argument or consideration. So a post-liberal America would not idolize these. Well, just as long as we have non-discrimination and no barriers to entry, then everything will work itself out and society will be awesome like no actually there's a greater good like men should fight because fighting is uh is physical it's psychological men are created bigger stronger or powerful analytical their brains are completely different there's all of these reasons why we should say we could say no some women should be barred from certain professions or something like that
4: and here's another one ben that goes maybe right to i mean you'll see this now applied in in various forms and it's kind of a buzz, you know, it's like a stand in for this idea. So the, you know, the famous Lochner versus New York case in 1905 basically introduces, you know, the principle that uh, you can, you can contract away anything, you know, so it's rooted in absolute sort of individual autonomy and self-determination. And so Um, If New York once wanted in that case to limit the hours that bakers could work, recognizing that um, there was some sort of predatory relationship involved where they could work 60, 70, 80 80 hours a week um, and be forced to. And then New York decided to limit that. And um, and that was overturned by the Supreme Court, right, as violating this this freedom to contract that they found Um, And in a post-liberal society. I would say, um, you know, those considerations should also be front and center Um, if you're if you're running an economy subordinate to higher and political goods you do think about um, conditions some of these economic relationships and you don't leave everything up to pure um, choice because actually the choices are loaded and um, don't work. You know they're not they're not as fulfilling for the baker as it seems like it would be. So of course the baker's going to do it uh, to keep their job and to make more money. But if you, you um, I guess I would say a post liberal economy would consider taking certain options off the table because it's detrimental to domestic life and higher goods such as good families and and you know going to church whatever. Um, so the same, same rationale is behind something like blue laws, which is to shut down economies. On Sunday, so that Christians are are privileged and not um, uh, don't don't uh, aren't penalized for not operating economically on the on the Lord's Day. So, anyway, that's
3: that. Can, my... can I
1: boil down uh, what you guys said <clears throat> into maybe one or one paragraph? And then that would be we'll great, Matt. Uh, determine whether we answered the question or not. So <laughs> Probably the, not. <laughs> uh, the, I think what you guys are saying is the middle class would not. You're not attributing the success and the rise of the middle class necessarily to an unrestrained free market in every sense you're you're um you would challenge that (laughs) i know you haven't gone into detail about that but you you don't think that there would be anything that would uh disrupt that relationship necessarily you could still get ahead you could we would still have private property but the difference would be is that instead of the market being the um an end it becomes a means to an end Mm -hmm. and the end then is uh Living in the created order that God has established and uh, trying to um, ensure that the traditions that we have developed over time so that we can live together peaceably aren't uh, rattled too much and, and just steamrolled by free market forces that then uh, do things like, uh, well, in this case, uh, w- you could look at the southern border, you could look at um, the moral degeneracy, sexually speaking, we've applied free market principles to just about every moral question now. So 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 that would be off the table because that would contradict the obligations that God has given us towards higher ends that he wants us to pursue. So um, the libertarian would look at that and say, well, you're you're not free market. Of course, there's never really been, you know, I guess the closest maybe would be like pre National Bank, you know, pre Jackson, I guess. You know, we're, but people were were more self-regulatory at that point. So it's um, so that that fear that the middle class would just disappear if there was a post-liberal order is not necessarily a realized. It's not something that we should be afraid of. I think that's what you guys are saying. Um, so if, if if no one's going to correct me on that, Matt, uh, I know that was a, that was a mouthful from all three of us. Um, does that not, help at no, all? That, that... Do you have follow up?
3: yeah yeah that was that was helpful. I mean I, I'm thinking that there's there's um a couple things that concern me is is obviously rising prices and and uh, the the dogma I was always taught was um, protectionism will actually increase prices and like the reason we can buy cheap goods at Walmart and and be able to afford uh, maybe more than we can is because of of global free trades. So what you're saying though is if there's a moral, Restraint on Adam Smith's invisible hand. Some of those forces will actually allow, like single-income homes or single-income households, to once again be able to afford to live. Whereas what you're saying is the um, Im- the non-moral or non-God-based uh, reign of free-market economics has caused some of these issues like inflation. Um, you know, bidding up of, of of wages or barriers to entry, et cetera. So you're saying that that by by having moral components in a society that would check uh, unrestrained or secular free market economics, we will get to a society like, say, in the more like in the '50s and '60s, when you know you could have a Levittown house, and and the get dad mm-hmm. could work, and the mom could stay home and raise the children, and be able to afford to live.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, that's not some of the things you're talking about, obviously, are caused by the Fed. You know, that's we can blame inflation on the Fed. Right. And yeah. uh, tampering, you know, into our economy from the government, I suppose. But um, I, I guess the main point is that I'm hearing from Ben and Timon, and I agree with is that um, it's not it's not necessarily this unrestrained in every sense of the word market that has caused the rise of the middle class and the success that America has enjoyed, you know, post-World War II, which is really, when you say post-World War II, we're talking about the GI bill, really. I mean, that's what I think most histories that attribute the rise of the middle class and the American dream, they they say it's the GI bill that, that caused all this. So even that's a government, you know, originating with the government, but um, there's never been like, even Adam Smith, had uh, certain things he wanted regulated so it wasn't like mm-hmm. that there's always been an assumption that there's a certain moral vision that has to channel the economic resources and it's inescapable so we're at a time now i think where we just don't have an option like it's gonna be either the, the pagans um controlling that moral vision and channeling it into all kinds of depravity and devaluing our dollar and and everything that we're seeing right now, or it's going to be uh, a return to a more Christian understanding of where there should be some limitations placed on what people can do with their resources and um that limit there's going to be a limitation either way, I guess that's what I'm saying
4: it's it's inescapable would would you guys agree with that no i think I think that's exactly right, and we are already um as Ben been been said, you know, economic categories have taken over almost free market economic categories have taken over almost, um, you know, any any policy considerations. So that's certainly true of immigration. And then even conservatives ostensibly here today, you know, you still have some Reaganites hanging around. It's like as long as they well, you know, immigrant immigration is great because you're just getting more workers and they they grow the economy. So like who don't worry about the cultural aspects of what assimilation looks like. Um, how much uh, social disruption a country can handle, and so all these externalities are, that are that are non-economic, at least on the in the first instance, they have economic implications are are almost never considered. And not only are they not considered, but not considering them becomes like a dogma that if you do insert those, you know, you're um, you, you're not sufficiently free market, therefore not sufficiently American or something like that. Um, but of course, you do still have things, regulations that are still in play. Um, As long as they can be justified under like consumer health or to reduce fraud or these sorts of things, because those are thought of as as uh, hampering the consumer's um, autonomy in the market. That's why those are okay. But you will see, you know, you're not allowed to sell certain things or certain types of goods Um, that is in some way it is a moral ish you know, consideration, even if it's predicated on something that's kind of amoral or we're less concerned about in this discussion. So your point, John, being that you're always going to do some kind of limitation in this way. Um, so you might as well try to make it um, limitations that are rooted in a, a higher vision of, of politics and and what man is um, and do it that way. You, you still can recognize that man is also um, you know, a rational and creative uh, creature and a social creature. So there's certain, um, you, you know, there's no reason to restrict freedom where you don't have to freedom of movement, any other kind of freedom. Um, but being comfortable with, with doing that for, for higher ends, I think is necessary. Matt. Yeah, we we <clears throat> would
1: probably have a a more free in, if society in a post like if it was our vision of post-liberalism, a Christian influence, post-liberalism, we're, there would actually be more freedom than there is now. That's the thing. Yeah, no,
3: I, I agree with you. Yeah I, yeah, I agree with that.
4: Yeah.
1: I would just say my kind of last comment for me, Matt, is
2: that I mean, there is a body of literature that's very fascinating to study that does critique capitalism in and of itself as being, um, you know, perhaps initially a force for good, but eventually and inexorably a disintegrating force on a people's morals, um, their wealth, their national um, cohesion um, and self-identity and consciousness. So you used to have someone like Adam Ferguson um, writing in the 18th century from the highlands in England and Scotland, you know, con- contrasting British commercial Republic with say um, the ancient con contest between Athens and Sparta, where Sparta was a closed community and their middle class was built on the basis of a, a Helot population, which were slaves. And so they, they didn't trade internationally in Greece, uh, whereas Athens did. And, but how did Athens do that? They did that by having an empire and basically controlling all the islands around them and levying them um, as vassal states to tax them. And then they had to build a massive Army, a navy, and they had to control their neighbors, and they did have kind of a commercial middle class, but it was uh, very, we might say, secular or pagan. So there is this, this, this worry and this concern, and the question is, can you can you hit that sweet spot where you have something like the protection of private property and the appropriate, you know, work of your body to produce good things and the accumulation of some capital equity and wealth without it destroying your morals and your religion and your consciousness and self-identity as a people. You see these debates going on in the early 19th century between uh, the Jeffersonians and the Whigs. And they were you know, debating that the introduction of paper money would uh, destroy the people's morals. So there's been this recurring theme, this, this question, this issue. The, the thing today, though, is that it's become a dogma. Capitalism can't be questioned. And what we're doing is we're, we're questioning it. And of course, we're getting excoriated for it. But questioning it is as old as American. I mean, this is what Americans have done from the beginning is to, to you know, interrogate these ideas and to say, is there something here that we should be cautious about?
1: Yeah, even the bailouts were, I mean, they're justified on market principles. That's the funny thing. Like even the government tampering into the market. And that's what you're getting at. It's like it's an end. It's like everything that's done can be justified if it's good for the market. If it's not good for the market, then maybe we shouldn't do it. Um, And I recall I was in a small southern town earlier this year. And a gentleman who was there told me that there was a man from Michigan who had moved down. I think, Matt, you're from Michigan, right? Yes, I thought so. I remember that. Yeah. Uh, but he, so you and you're now, I think, what, in South Carolina or Georgia? No, I'm,
3: Sorry. In, jo- I'm in the northern Atlanta suburbs. Right. Yeah, Georgia. Georgia. So
1: so maybe uh, I don't know, Atlanta's Atlanta, but maybe maybe you've seen some of this in Georgia where uh, this gentleman from Michigan came to Alabama, got on the town board, very conservative. Right. Like Michigan conservative, yep. but was always running up against the town board because he wanted what was good for the market. That was his his ideology was. Hey, if we're, if we need to build a shopping center here, let's zone it for shopping. We're going to bring more money in. And the community was like, we don't want that though. That's going to change us. So that's, that's what Ben is getting at. I think is like, there is, there are these identity and character issues that, um, that must be considered as well. It can't just be whatever's good for the dollar, whatever's good for the market, because, you know, then you're living you have the potential to live in really a, a terrible place with, with terrible morality and congestion and, and, and eyesores and all the rest. It's just not a place you really want to live. And people escape those places to get to like a nice place in the suburbs.
3: Yeah. Yeah. And, um, I, I, I agree with that. I mean, Jesus talks about that in Luke 12, you know, build bigger barns and bigger barns and yeah. your life will be required of you. Yeah. I, I totally get that. It's it's just that um, I, I, I was, I was always, I mean, that's why I wanted to ask that question about, you know, but well, how do you, in that context, you know, how do you still provide for your family? Um, even, even keeping those moral, um, moral things. I mean, maybe, but, but that's why I'm, I'm glad to listen well, they, to you guys. Yeah. Go they ahead. did
1: an old Testament Israel, right? I mean, that, that was yeah. a system that valued private property. Yeah. And also there is a lot of regulations on, uh, yeah. what kinds of moral things were acceptable. So, it, yeah. I mean, it's no, not like a new thing, really.
3: Mm-hmm. Okay.
1: That's great. Yeah. No, that's awesome, Matt. Great question. Thank you. Good to see yeah, you. Thanks, Matt.
3: Thank, thank you. I appreciate it, guys.
1: Um, SLE. Uh, I don't know who that is, but SLE is uh, standing by, but there is no microphone. So if you turn your microphone on, SLE, I will come mm-hmm. to you. We have a number of chat. Um, I, I should probably go to the Truce Dispatch first because uh, he has now spent $30 on asking us questions. So. <laughs> And, and he has, I talk guess. Talk about capitalism. Yeah, talk about yeah, capitalism. Stage capitalism. <laughs> <laughs> Let's get some uh, ads in here. I appreciate that, uh, the Truth Dispatch. Uh, so the, here's number one. I have two questions for y'all. Number one, can y'all address Christians who think they do political theology because they believe in modern application of God's law, but don't know what they're talking about?
4: That's <laughs> a little bit of a loaded question. <laughs>
1: hey, can you address people who don't know what they're talking about? <laughs> I think he's are, talking about mm-hmm. there. So, theonomist there. Theonomist? Well, he a... said modern application of God's law. Yeah. Um, well, that's the first question. So the second one looks different. So maybe we
4: should just oh. start there. Um, sure, address it. Um, I mean, I've, I've written some critiques of, of theonomist. I mean, most of the theonomist I know are, are good guys and, and co-belligerents in many ways uh, in our present moment. So I don't dis- dislike them as people but there is a a, my fundamental beef with theonomy is there as as i've written before miscategorization of law um so they they miscategorize what the mosaic civil law is um which which is really human positive law but god acts as the legislator um and so it's the perfect application of the natural law which of course is uh inscripturated in the decalogue but we're talking about all the other regulations and so it's a perfect application of natural law to a particular context and a particular people that's fitting for them and so what the benefit of the mosaic code is to show you how to do that um with higher ends in view as well i mean exceedingly higher ends in view at that point but uh you know it's a model legislation um it doesn't mean that if if it, if something is fitting for a, a polity now that you couldn't use it, there's obviously nothing wrong with those laws insofar as they could possibly apply um to our condition now. But that polity has expired and therefore have the so have those uh those civil laws as the as the Westminster Confession says. Um so I think it's um I think their their problem is the miscategorization of, of what the Mosaic Code is. In terms of the you know, the Thomistic taxonomy that I'm, that I'm using, that everybody kind of uses. Um, and so I think it's instructive, the, the Old Testament law is instructive. We, you can uh, apply it you know, insofar as it reflects the natural law, and you would adjust for your own uh, conditions and time in that application of natural law. But it doesn't mean that it's the only possible um, ceiling and floor, which is how theonomists treat it, right? Ceiling and floor, applic- a, a way to govern a polity legally. Um, there could be many more styles of governance and um, legal codes that would be equally uh, agreeable to the natural law, but be different because people are different and cultures are different. Um, and so, I, th- I think theonomists don't ref- respect not only the, the the right categorization of that law, but the human element of law and society. Um, and so, it makes it c- confusing. The good thing about them is they love they love the scripture they um love you know do think about political things and that's i appreciate that and then there's you know culturally with a lot of theonomists the, there's um sometimes more is owed to their libertarianism than it is to the theory of theonomy itself that they're getting you know even rush Duny's have uh, been, leans that way and so anyway that that's a like a side discussion but i would just say that the um those people that that do that that are like hardcore theonomists um, are not sufficiently in touch with the with the Protestant tradition and should just do more reading. These questions have been answered centuries ago. I always say Franciscus Junius's Mosaic Polity is what everyone should read. It, he doesn't know what theonomy is, but he he obliterates it. Um, it's it's the same question. Magistrates have asked him, "What do we do with the Old Testament law?" And so he explains these things. Um, and I just think they should read that and realize that there's there. Their political and moral concerns that they have, which is they want a God-honoring, just polity, can and have been answered in different ways that don't require such a formulaic transportation of this code that was made for one people at one time to everybody. Um, and, and so, and they get, it, they get really goofy, of course, right? If that's the ceiling and the floor, um, you can't have like traffic laws. Because there's no scriptural referent, and I'm like, that's I'm sorry, I just don't want 16-year-olds driving tons of metal down the road to not be regulated in the way they do that because it's harmful. The other thing would be their theonymous general aversion to um, laws that are that are preventative in nature. They only want things to be punished after the fact, um, so that gets you know very kind of sticky. Um, so there's lots of more practical problems like that, but the, but the principle I want to I want to treat them on principle and not just like the, the quirks. And so I've already laid that out. That's my beef with them. Um, I don't think they, uh, sometimes they know what they're talking about. Maybe, maybe other times they don't. <laughs> so. Well, you know, one of the laws that it,
1: this, cause I was definitely, uh, at one time very influenced by, especially Greg Bonson's version of theonomy. One of the scriptures though, that challenged me, um, was when Jesus uh, talks about Moses because of the hardness of their heart, implementing laws about divorce. Mm -hmm. uh, And and then of course the allowance of polygamy uh, in, in, obviously Kings weren't supposed to multiply wives, but it wasn't a uh, for the, for the general person like the main concern was intermarrying with other nations, not Mm -hmm. multiple wives. And we've developed in Western societies uh, a monogamy that, uh, or, or at least I should say a legal tradition that values monogamy to such an extent that you will be, uh, in trouble. You will be a bigamist if you marry someone and then you go marry someone else, you know, that kind of thing. So, um, is that a positive development? That's what I would want to ask someone who's just, you know, living and dying on the mosaic law. Like, don't you think that's a good thing that we've, that, that that's been a, mm-hmm. a, not, not that, that means God's law is less than perfect because it is perfect. It's, mm-hmm. but as you were saying time and it's for a specific application in a specific context, which is exactly what Jesus says mm-hmm. that because of the hardness of their hearts, they had to, the law had to be crafted in such a way. And so um, I think that yeah. just
4: shows you kind of how this is supposed to be used. And totally. um, I mean, I've, t- I've talked yeah. to the self-professing ones that will, will tell you, you can't, um, even, I, I think the hypothetical I've used is even publicly. So even like public pornography, you can't regulate it. Are what you, you serious? I've never yeah, heard that. I've wow. talked to people that way. Yeah. I, you know, I <laughs> should assume that they're, they're Christian brothers. So they're not being like funny about it. I don't think they're that's just... most
1: the, I don't think that's most people who would say they're theonomy. No, but
4: but, it, but it's um, yeah. yeah. I mean, Bonson doesn't say that right. right Bonson right. also has, I, I mean, one problem too is that Bonson, Rush Dooney, Gary North are, um, we're very we're very smart guys also, and their progeny is it performs a little under par compared to them, I would say, um, most of the time. So those are very sm- smart guys. there's there's some profit in reading them, especially uh, what is it? North's Poly Piety is an interesting book. Um, but they also have historical problems. Bonson has historical problems um, that are that are replicated by today by like Joe Boot in his use of the the tradition, especially Puritanism. Uh, the, in that sense, uh, to Truth Dispatch's question, they have no idea what they're talking about. But that doesn't mean everything about their theory is like just way left field. And Bonson and those guys do real work, and you gotta you can wrestle with it. But I think the the root idea um, is is problematic, and then it um, that is sometimes you know, not to commit a logical fallacy, but sometimes demonstrated by crazy conclusions that people can come to following those, those principles. And their points.
1: Well, we've been going over half an hour. We've gotten to a whopping two questions. So we got to move it on a little. <laughs> okay, and okay, Ben, sorry. if you could just be, if you could answer this one, um, I'm going to just go through the, the three from Truth Dispatch. Second question, can you all interrogate the liberals universal and global view of law? Christians who believe in modern application of God's law have adopted this by conflating Christ's rule rule? I'm trying to understand the question.
2: Well, Um, I'll say, I'll say something like this, Um, you know, kind of a a universalist uh, perspective on law. Um, I mean, you could say in one sense, the modern application of that comes out of Kant's work where he wants to have um, a moral ethic in which anything that you do, and this gets translated into law, anything that you do has to be able to be universalized so that everybody can do it. Um, And It doesn't create harm or conflict, Um, you know, kind of pie in the sky. Uh, And and this is done on the basis of just pure reason, pure uh, rational analysis. You can't take any kind of material conditions or self-interest or utility into view whatsoever. And so this idea of having this perfectly universal moral ethic or principle, these moral precepts that can then get translated into moral law, in some ways, this is the foundation of international law today. And of course, Kant wanted an international federation of, you know, states. Um, so it's it is this Kantian-driven Kantian dream of a perfect moral universe um, in which we, you know, we can have everyone can agree on these things, and then if we just can implement them and get people to go along with it. Um, you know, we can have world peace. And this is the title of one of Kant's works, Perpetual Peace. This is what he wants, complete and total perpetual peace. We're going to overcome human conflict and war and death. Um, and we're going to do it by the power of human reason. We're not going to do it by God's grace or God's kingdom or the gospel or anything like that. So I, I do think that that's a huge uh, kind of driving factor. It's also a, a massive motivation. Uh, that I think Christians don't know this. Um, when they come to to reason about morality and law and society, and that they've completely lost the element or the possibility of prudence, which always takes into consideration definitely basic precepts of the natural law and the conclusions, basic, um, you know, natural conclusions from those precepts. But then they have to be applied, and they're always applied variously depending upon one circumstance, such that you could have Um, a statesman on one day apply the same principle and conclusion exactly the opposite on the next day because the situation changed. This seems messy. It, it, you know, rings up the problem of inconsistency and being hypocritical and so forth. Um, And sometimes, like, these decisions are the privy of, uh, you know, a president who it needs secrecy and dispatch. Um, and of course, that's why you need a great man in the presidency who is virtuous and trustworthy and a Christian. Um, and I think this is exactly the view of the founders. So there's there's the loss of prudence is a misunderstanding of the natural law as being just kind of these timeless and eternal kind of set of just rules of rights and wrongs. And this, and, and this is what, you know, if you read any kind of Christian ethics texts from the past, like 30 years, this is just how it goes. Like they set forth kind of basic biblical principles of ethics and then they go down the issues like, you know, abortion and stem cell research and you know, marriage and euthanasia. And they try to come to like the perfect biblical Christian evangelical, you know, principle and ethic for this thing for all times and all people in all places. That's a really anemic, very shallow and very, you know, um, uh, kind of crippling way of doing you know ethics and law.
1: Yeah, no, good. Um, one more question from Truth Dispatch. Uh, ben engaged Brian Matson on American Reformer. Brian, along with Boot and Sandlin, so these Ezra Institute guys, are some Christians who have generally adopted that liberal view of law and political theology. Why are they wrong? <laughs> okay, these are very direct questions. I I, I love the uh, the directness Truth here. So yeah, man. Um, that's for you, Ben. Why are they wrong? Let
2: let me tell you, they're very, very wrong. The most wrong (laughs) they've ever been. (laughs) Um, I mean, okay. Like my, the critique here could go on forever. Um, but I mean, one of my major critiques is they do essentially adopt a quote unquote liberal conception of politics, which says that government bad. Okay. Big government, really bad and so we need limited government we need small government now the view of the founders was not just limited government it was that the national government should have l- s- certain limited ends but unlimited scope to achieve those limited ends and then the domestic sphere had the states had other limited ends and unlimited scope to achieve those ends that's the kind of limited government they're talking that, that the founders were talking about and then what the what like you know sandlin and matson will do They'll, again, the sand level will go back and say like we've got rules. We can't break these rules. The left is breaking the rules, and if the right breaks the rules, and all hell is going to break loose. I'm like, you know, the 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 whole tectonic plate has shifted. You know, like an entire continent from the 1770s and 80s, and they they're they you know they're they are rearranging the deck chairs, and they're worried about rules. Um, and then and then something like what Matson will do is he'll say that um. You know, he's. if you limit government, then you increase the private sphere, this culture. So you have free culture. This is how you get freedom. This is how you get free markets. This is how you you have sound families and so forth and so on. So it's a very negative and pessimistic view of government that has to be kind of cordoned off into this little sphere and contained over here. And then you have culture that's, uh, you know, basically going to run the show because guess what? Politics is always downstream from culture. That's another kind of uh, little truism that they kind of bang away at. And I don't think that that's, I mean, it's not the case. It's not, it's not false that culture influences the political sphere, but it's just as much the other way around. I mean, look at Obergefell, how many Americans were polling in favor of gay marriage before, you know, 2015 or, you know, it's, it wasn't, it was what, 50, 50 maybe. And now it's way majority. So, um, law obviously inescapably shapes people. It shapes the culture. It drives things all the time. And as long as you have this liberal, this kind of, you know, neoliberal, modern liberal conception of law and politics the way that these guys do, you're never going to, you're always going to be a perpetual loser. You're never going to be willing to take the reins of government and policy and actually use them to shape people's hearts and minds and to, you know, shape a law of fashion that's going to be prohibitive against them doing things that they shouldn't do anyway. So we, we have to be comfortable doing that because all law does that. Uh, every government's always done that the left does it unashamedly. And they say, we're right to do it because our, our morals are better than yours. And they're wrong. We, we actually have better morals and we have the truth. We have like the God of the King of Kings and Lord and Lords on our sides. And we're like, Oh, we can't use power.
1: The ironic thing to me is, uh, the i I I've run into this a number of times where people will be like, they'll repeat Bonson's, you know, there is no neutrality, right? Of course there isn't. Uh, and then the next conclusion though, is that all of the, the liberal neutrality that we have comes from God's law somehow. So they, that, that become like, it, like it's like a parallel, like the, the neutrality we're supposed to somehow, uh, protect and defend is also one and the same with, uh, the status quo god wants us operating in and uh it just yeah, it strikes me they, as odd like it's a weird it, i don't know i don't i don't know if you've seen that but it just came to my head
4: no i t- i yeah. totally agree with that and I, here's here's how i would describe it this is what i think they're obviously subconsciously doing it's like there is no neutrality because it's either you know god's truth or or whatever else they'll say um what they what they've bought it the kool-aid they've drank though is is all is the fundamental, you know, a fundamental liberal conception of politics, which is um, you need, the reason it's rules-based is to, to mitigate against conflict. Um, and they buy into the same rationale for that that other liberals do. Um, so what they want is to say, you know, in the public square, whatever that means to them, where there's like, it's like a, you know, a boxing match and it's like an arena and there's a referee and there's certain things you can and can't do. And this is the fair way to like, handle this. And obviously no one's neutral one side versus the other side, but we've got to keep this civil, you know, guys, it's got to be constrained and that's the best way to, you know, to do it. Um, And again, as Ben was kind of pointing out, it assumes this sort of one dimensional aspect to the contest and this linear, linear, I was going to say fake word, I guess, linear direction of the, uh, of, of the flow of, of influence in society. Um, I would agree with Ben. I mean, law, if anything, law influences culture and politics uh, this is why Tocqueville says that the lawyers in America are the natural aristocracy. Since there is no natural aristocracy, the lawyers have taken that place. They will dictate everything. Um, and and that's basically true. This is and, and it's not um, it's actually it's not actually that improper um, because the laws do direct people as a as a, um, you know, an ordinance for action. Uh, they They, of course, direct people and then they do have a way. Of influencing even not only your intellect where you make this, but but also even you know your your will in a very real sense. So th- this is all you know totally appropriate. It is coercive. Coercion's fine. Like it's a, it's a, just a fact of life. Um, and so I think they just have a a very they have a very juvenile view of of how society works and how politics works, and that that fact is not necessarily good or bad. It's just a question of what's going to. Um, directed and if you, it, my favorite quote from Nathaniel Ward in uh, *Simple Cobbler Vagabom* is, I'll have to paraphrase it. So actually, never Is he's talking about religion and like re- these people already shouting like Roger Williams for religious liberty, and he's like, whoever won't enforce their religion um, is either like a coward or doesn't actually believe it. And mm-hmm. I would say that in a, in a general sense to to some of these guys. I'm like, either you think like Ben was saying that we, it, our morality is the true one and is better. It doesn't mean because we're finite human, there won't be mistakes, but you either believe that or you don't. And this kind of just free for all contest, even as they're shouting no neutrality from the ring and they're getting their face pummeled, you know, by Mike Tyson in the corner. I'm just like, what, you know, what, what is this? I don't know. That's a, that's a total ramble. We should move on before.
1: <laughs> no, no, that's good. It's a good ramble. Yeah. Uh, let's, one of you uh, can can start to tackle Ayn Rand. We have a question oh. from George Silo. Are you familiar with Dr. John Robbins' book, Without a Prayer, Ayn Rand and the Close of Her System? Robbins was a Presbyterian, a great take, takedown of objectivism. Um, and I think he later on followed up. Oh, I can't find it. Oh, would love to hear her uh, thought on Ayn Rand. So um, have you heard of that book? And then... Uh, what are your thoughts on Ayn Rand? I mean, is, is Ayn Rand, um, is she liberal? Like is libertarianism, liberalism on steroids? How do you distinguish them? I, I'm kind of curious about that because we haven't actually gone through that in our series yet. Either one I, of you. I I've never heard of that book. And I will be honest and proud of the fact that I've never read,
2: uh, Ayn Rand. So I haven't even read Atlas Shrugged, believe it or not. Um, maybe I will, but you know, do I need to not? Yeah. Um, I, I think
4: mean, William F Buckley once said he had to flog himself through it. <laughs> you <laughs> Which, know, like, they hated each other. A, yeah. Right. Or particularly like either one of them. So.
2: <laughs> so the question, the question there, John of, you know, uh, uh, the relationship between, you know, objectivism, liber- libertarianism and liberalism, of course, um, you know, you could go a couple different directions with this. The question basically, as far as I understand objectivism, like the main um, ethic there is one of self-interest. And you always act out of your own self-interest. And you have these, you know, Twitter uh, Rand bros t- t- even saying that God always does everything out of his own self-interest. And so it's now become a theology as well as a political theory or a social ethic. Um, And so then the question becomes, what's the what's the role of self-interest in a liberal polity? Um, You know, if you go back to Hobbes, do you enter civil society because it's a war of all against all and you're alienated from everybody else and you only care about your own self-preservation? Is that a form of just naked self-interest? You know, is uh, Adam Smith's uh, version of the invisible hand and uh, the market, is that a form of self-interest? You'd have to answer those questions and you'd have to compare them to, you know, is specifically what um, Rand is saying in her work of what self-interest is. So my view on this is that libertarianism is a, how how would you put it? It's like a, um, it's a privation of liberalism basically. Uh, it's a twisted and kind of deformed, um, you know, stepson in a way, it takes some of the principles of liberalism, and then totally destroys the counterbaling, counterbalancing ideas and principles, or the proper uh, context, the religious and the moral presuppositions of it, for other purposes, you know, progress, or the destruction of uh heritage and ancestry or custom and tradition um whatever it may be or just unleashing unleashing yeah avarice greed self-interest your best life now whatever it may be so i I think liberal uh libertarianism feeds off of liberalism um and and in kind of like the worst possible way and it does run with the kind of naked self-interest um as kind of the highest goal, this autonomy, this choice. And as long as you maximize that choice, and of course, all men are perfectly rational. So then you get some kind of rational choice theory that comes out of that. You know, you can't have a better society. You can't have a more free society. And then of course, what they do is they take that ideology of freedom and they read it back into the best of the early uh, liberal or proto-liberal tradition uh, that did talk about liberty, but it talked about the liberty of the people in relationship to each other, or, you know, uh, horizontally, but also the liberty they had before God. That was a liberty that was constrained by religious and moral ends, and it, it it was concerned more with the inner, you know, development and liberty of the person, not just, you know, is is someone somewhere trying to stop me from, you know, you know, what what is it now, zoophilia, you know. basically bestiality bestiality is now the the raging thing with Peter Singer going praising that article on Twitter today is like this is the new libertarian fad now so did not see that oh gosh so I don't know that's about all I have on Rand yeah Yeah, in
4: some situations it may be morally permissible to uh, have some sexual relations with animals
1: yeah that's what he said
4: um, he was promoting an article from a journal that I believe he's an editor on that's called the, the journal of controversy, controversy, something like that. Is, is Peter Singer um, a libertarian? Um, I don't know what, what he would categorize himself as. I mean, he's a liberal, uh, I don't know if yeah. he's ever embraced libertarian, but I think Ben's, uh, application of the point is fair. That's kind of a there's a libertarian aspect to the, to his ethics, um, that I would just, this is all I'll add so we can keep moving on. It's like the, um, both those, so Peter Sanger and then um, Ayn Rand, I mean, it's a, they have a very, we, we talked about this with, with Hobbes a couple of weeks ago or whenever it was. Uh, it begins with, I think, a reductionist anthropology um, that's, you know, they use the term rationality, but it's in this, it's in this very extreme, it has been said, self-interested way that does not, does not um in its scope is not the full man and his, in his higher ends, much less his uh, sociability or relational ends. It's all um, again, so self, self-interest it's all, you know, that this is how uh, this is like man's height's existence. The people who are super rational and cynical and self-interested will survive. And it's almost, you know, got that sort of eugenicist aspect of like, then you would keep yeah. having a society of the, maybe you should say Darwinist would be better, but um mm-hmm that that's like the view so it's a reductionist anthropology and that leads you always to bad places and i think that's where where rand and the objectivists begin um and that obviously influences your epistemology and these things and it's very simple i think that's why it catches on libertarianism is very simple and you can apply it and it allows you to be mad at everything and everybody (laughs) and and like that's a good place to be you know especially whether you're an old guy like sitting on his back porch or a, or a young guy on Reddit, like you get the same kind of cathartic experience from that. Um, so I just, I just yeah. consider it goofy and I think it's eventually dying, but I will say this, that the objectivism of, of Rand insofar as I understand it is, is not, um, it's, it's not incongruent with certain things, even though it's a more intellectual project you will see out of, out of like the bat crowd, right? The Nietzschean right has similar views of like man's, purpose and political goal and things. And it is very, it, it's not this simplistic, but it is, it is similar in like the, and it influences their reading of, of like even Greek mythology and like Homer and these things, which I think are, are off, but um, there's something, something similar there in the way Rand will talk about, you know, like the, the, the sort of ideal man and, and what he's supposed to be is, is not unlike the modern interpretations on the Nietzschean right of of those things. So. Yeah, uh, maybe it will always live on in new forms, just like the the Sith or something. They just come back. But
1: anyway, I've always thought about it is like a, an ideology that has two basic tenets, right? The non-aggression principle and the free market. And pretty much on those two two uh, principles, you can solve any political question. And so, right, right, right. So, so they, you don't have to know hardly anything to be a libertarian. It, it's mm-hmm. very simple yeah and and I think, as you said I mean that's been my observation too they they tend to not get along well with others play well with mm-hmm. others they tend to be very arrogant too um mm-hmm. and they've never uh really had a lot of political power or been able to test their ideas in you know uh any kind of um you know i mean you they might take cases in like um uh I don't know Switzerland uh, even Switzerland's a hard one to take but I've heard them try to appeal to uh you know pre Jackson America mm-hmm. and Switzerland and th- these are places that have kind of more their ideals mm-hmm. but even even those places don't really fit Randian um mm-hmm. uh, libertarianism so um yeah. anyway yeah they, I don't know if there's anything more on libertarianism well, you wanted to say I would in? just
4: say to, I would just say to like Christians don't like use the term or fall into these things for sure, but use the, the term libertarian just because you're you're frustrated and see problems and fractures in like the current government um, or regime and don't just default to, well, you know, I need to be able to get government out of everything on principle. It always mucks everything up um, the, the there you can do you, you can walk and chew gum at the same time. All of us recognize problems. It's part of our whole conversation. You don't have to go to this extreme of, well, everything would be great if we just had no government. Yeah. Um one that doesn't comport with man's nature. Two, it's certainly um, never been tried at, at, at scale and I think would be bad. Um and also you have in this objectivist kind of world, I never see a um I never see an outlet in there for Things like well, certainly not altruism. That's famous, right? That like she rejects that. But uh, what goes along with that is is sort of a nationalist, you know, uh, patriotism and sacrifice and these things. I just don't see where, how you fit that into the equation of the system, which I which I find abhorrent and is certain certainly something that we shouldn't emulate. Um, if you can't do anything for other people, I don't really understand what would be the um, uh, the rationale for you know fighting and dying for your your country or doing anything else for its good, even protectionist policies that consider the the lives and cultures and traditions of a people. So it's very it's a very thin dogma, and I just find it super boring, and and yeah. gave up reading about it a long time ago. But
2: I would just add, I was I remember back when I read David Boaz's, who's the head of the Cato Institute, or at least he was. I don't know if he's still there. Um, his little book, The Libertarian Mind, and <laughs> Um, I was back when I was flirting with libertarianism because I was a Ron Paul fan and I, you know, had read his book Free to choose. I don't know. Maybe it was to take off. Of That's Re- Milton Friedman. Mil- right? Milton Friedman. It was another book. Mm-hmm. I forget what it was called. But um, anyway, literally, like in the first chapter, in the first 10 pages, uh, Boaz like pulls the definition of liberty from justice kennedy's planned parenthood versus <laughs> and he's like you know freedom is yeah, liberty is absolutely like the right to define one's concept of existence and meaning in the universe and the mystery of human life and i'm like you're dead to me dude i yeah. this is the end of libertarianism like it it was so shallow and it was so selfish and it had it just had no restraints no mm-hmm. way to direct any it was just i mean the absurdity of it was so so far gone to me i was I can't believe this anymore. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if the, if that's the version of libertarianism that you're dealing with, run for the hills.
1: Yeah, there's no I'll higher know. ends in that. It's all know. It terminates with it's, you. Sure. Yeah. So.
4: And if ever, if anyone Ben and John maybe you've read this, if anyone wants a like a masterful takedown of Milton Friedman, not not at, like a policy prescriptive level, but like the the internal um thought, uh, you know, it, behind the the system is in Rusty Reno's chapter in Return of the Strong Gods. There's not a better takedown of Friedman, and he he does it masterfully. And it's like he's he's a liberal, he's a total post-war liberal. I can't believe you know it's like me extrapolating for Reno. You know, I can't believe conservatives bought into this guy. Oh, to this Milton Friedman. Yeah.
1: yeah, yeah. I mean, I have read free to Choose and you know yeah. uh, like maybe fifteen years ago, and thought, oh, this is great and. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, there are some good things uh I mean I, I like the free market. I wish the Mises Institute would run our economy. like I kind of <laughs> feel like they they understand like market principles, but obviously i don't like I don't want morals coming from from them necessarily but but that's the thing with like um with Friedman too like he's some of the things that he talks about are so true as far as the the connection between supply and demand and and like where the government can. Uh, muck things up like he 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 tends to be so right i think that's the reason time and that's why conservatives see those things and then they'll buy into the whole philosophy mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm. yeah uh, i mean i've well, read a bunch of thomas Sowell gonna... and i i benefit yeah. from him when i need like totally. nuts and bolts on an economic matter right right but he totally leaves the religious and moral element out of it completely
4: In in which case it's reduced to a complete laboratory theory right if you're leaving out uh fundamental human elements and don't have a, a well-constructed anthropology that's operative, uh, you're, you're doing a lab theory that sounds great. The, I mean, the, if it would work that way, but it just doesn't because motivations are too diverse. Yeah. Um, and I don't think it accounts. Uh, uh, so, so I remember someone saying what um, I can't remember who that, you know, the economies were better before economists ran them
1: <laughs> they were run
4: by like classicists, you know, because yeah. these guys, you know, kind of, Anyway, they get caught up in in theory, and they should work. Like I'm sure it's super frustrating for them of like, why doesn't this work the way it's supposed to? Um, it's just the it's just human life. So anyway, I think you have to have the the high, same thing for political theories. You know, there's certain things that would be makes perfect sense uh, well, on paper, but they they,
1: they seem way. to like look at people as as numbers sometimes. Like it becomes yeah. all a math equation. And I noticed that with Thomas Sowell's uh, treatment of history, sometimes yeah. it is so one dimensional and it leaves out certain like the one that people talk about a lot is his black rednecks white liberals mm-hmm. and the whole theory about, you know, the, uh, where he talks about the, the, uh, uh cracker culture being the inspiration mm-hmm. for today's kind of gangsters and so forth. And, and it's, it's so bad historically. It's, it's mm-hmm. just, it's not a good argument. Um, but it plays well politically today. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, 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 and he's looking at a lot of economic factors to try to make it work. And, and not everything's economic. Like most things mm-hmm. are actually, they come down to cultural factors. But um, mm-hmm. we, we probably should get off the libertarian thing for, unless people have follow-up questions. Because there are two more questions I really want to get to. Um, no, I was one, just going to say
4: my favorite thing about Thomas Sowell is every book cover since the 80s to now is the same design. It's is it? red, and white, and black letters, block, no pictures, black background. Every book is the same. And it's amazing. It's like he's doing it as a as like a 30-year troll. They look yeah. like they're on Amazon, like self-published. Like there's just no, like and no work went into it. They're just, <laughs> they're great.
2: I love in basic economics, it's like literally to get the notes, you have to go online and download a PDF. <laughs> I don't care about notes. No, isn't
1: all right here's a a question for five dollars have any of you read george fitzhugh uh any thoughts if you have from evan gerber um any of you read george fitzhugh
2: yeah i've read some of him we read um him in a class here that uh at hillsdale that we have to take and um it was his southern thought from 1857 Hmm. um it was just excerpts of it and from what i remember i don't i mean i'm I, he was one of the more intelligible defenders of slavery and of the southern culture and he was a very interesting and passionate thinker and writer and he basically made the argument that the south was was um, going to lose the slavery argument because it was too focused on the specific issue of negro slavery in the south as opposed to defending and making good arguments for slavery in the abstract Right, and then a Of course, he followed that up with attacks on, you know, Adam Smith and laissez-faire capitalist economies saying that, um, you know, the North had its own problem with this. You you know, it's not slave labor. It's actually worse. It's these day laborers who uh, have no relationship whatsoever to their capitalist overlords and they're being absolutely ground to dust um, and they're worse off. And so he had a more paternalistic argument in favor of slavery. So I mean, those are some of the elements that I remember from from him. I think and he, he wrote went some to other Yale
1: or Harvard. Yeah. Maybe, I think it was Yale, and he he presented there uh, mm-hmm. uh, his argument. And he, he, he wrote a debated. couple of other
2: books like Cannibals All, and I forget yeah. the other ones. But he's a very interesting thinker, worth reading. Um, mm-hmm. But you know, he was a more elo- eloquent defender of Southern culture.
1: Mm-hmm. I I haven't read him. I've uh, well, I've probably read excerpts from him. I've never read like a full work of his, but I I have um, uh, I'm somewhat familiar with people who have read him. Not that that makes it any better. I'm no expert. But one of the things that I remember, because I actually just heard a speech on George Fitzhugh uh, not long ago that was arguing for a, uh, a, a cesarean figure to come forward. Right. Uh, and that, based upon George Fitzhugh's arguments, that basically hierarchy is inevitable, and so, so, so not arguing for a, a, a labor relationship, but a political arrangement. But um, my understanding was his arguments defending slavery in the abstract were not necessary. They they, they weren't the mainstream arguments in the South. I mean, they're they're highly philosophical arguments. Uh, the South, I mean, even if you read Calhoun, Calhoun is not, def- he, he makes it clear. I'm not defending this in the abstract. It's, mm-hmm. it's this particular situation, uh, that we have, uh, right now. And, you know, most of the Southerners were gradual emancipationists who thought it's going to, you know, die out and stuff. But the was unique in that he was like, actually, no, like slavery is embedded into the human condition somehow. Like we're all going to be slaves of something or, or like there, there's going to be this economic, uh, relationship that it comes out and, and you can't suppress it. And in some ways I'm not, I, I don't know enough. And, and I certainly, you know, I don't want shadow slavery or anything like that. I, I'm glad it's over. And, um, but the thing is y- you do look at the development and you see that these hierarchies do tend to emerge in other places. Mm-hmm. We just don't smear them or categorize them as such, but you know, we still go and, and buy from sweatshop labor as we go into Walmart, mm-hmm. you know, to purchase clothes we still have a prison system in which, uh, you know, people are essentially slaves Our welfare system is essentially it, it's mm-hmm. it, if it's not slavery, there are people generally rationally in it who have a very tough time getting out of it. Um, you see in the coal towns, you know, people could not get out of those economic conditions. It was basically a form of slavery. You see it with the immigrants coming across the border illegally and how they're abused and the sexually, I mean, I could go on and on and on, but, um, John, did you see
4: that that piece at National Affairs like a couple months ago about opioids in Appalachia over the centuries and how it was introduced?
1: I didn't read it. but I, I think someone sent it to me.
4: Yeah, it was an amazing piece. Uh, gets at what you're saying. So this was beginning in like you know late 19th, early 20th century is where the, the kind of the, the scope of time here. So it's not you know it's after slavery, um, but just pointing out like how the you know the coal companies would, would only pay people and basically, you know, what, like monopoly money, you can't take it outside of the, and they would constrict, you'd have your grocery store that would accept it. So it becomes this constrained, uh, you know, little commune. Um, and everything is, is wrapped up in the co- Your dependency is extreme on the coal company or, or, you know, whatever. And, um, and then it was going into talking about like how doctors treated these people, just pumped them with opiates for, for, decades and decades and decades without restraint um it's just awful i mean it's an awful what you know was done to that uh you know those are my people that's where i'm from that what was done to southern ohio kentucky uh eastern tennessee was pretty terrible west virginia of course um pretty terrible and it's this it is very much i mean if the if if earlier political theorists have looked at it they would be like that's slavery plain yeah. and simple. That is a slave a slave relationship. Well, and a bad
1: form of it too. <laughs> and a bad and exactly
4: a bad form of it. You don't have magnanimous, you know, masters at all there. Um yeah. and so they're just drugging people, killing people essentially, and with labor, you know, it's like a labor camp. Um so so the point at your your point and, and we have this today, uh you know no one talks about those episodes. Uh they're buried um, you know, everyone wants to defend basically the uh, the Muslim East for everything they do, but they actually still have just plain and simple slave trade. Still, it's alive and well. It's never gone That's away. Right. Yep. Um, they they of course uh, some of those same countries are the greatest offenders of, of sex trafficking and all these things, and no one talks about that because it's the wrong people. Um, so I I consider you know the the castigation of. Of uh, you know white Americans because of slavery forever perpetually to be a, a bit of a psyop so that you don't pay attention to the other abysmal economic and otherwise relationships that that currently support the liberal order and are necessary to economically and politically um, to to sort of turn a blind eye to.
1: Yeah, yeah. That I mean, that's the funny thing. My iPhone, even you know, like yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I. Right. Liberal, or I mean, this is the device of liberalism, really. And yet, mm-hmm. uh, it, it is built on the backs of people in third world countries, uh, you know, working for nothing, living yeah. in poverty. So, um, we have another question. Man, these are really deep questions. I'm, I'm kind of impressed here. Uh, mm-hmm. Chandler uh, Bard says, Have you read any of Carlyle's thoughts on the industrial revolution? Many can easily apply to libertarians as well. Any of you?
4: I've only read from Carlyle a few essays and and thoughts on French revolutions or whatever, or the the history of the French Revolution. Um, So I've not read him on the Industrial Revolution.
2: Yeah, I haven't. I haven't either. I don't have much to say on that.
1: Yeah, I don't. I I guess he lived. I mean, he died in 1881, so he would have seen. He certainly would have seen the beginnings of it. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Uh, I haven't read anything from him either on that. So sorry. I know it's five dollars he paid, but uh, I know we're I not mean, very good
4: new right yeah. representatives because everyone reads Carlyle now. He's like back in vogue.
1: Yeah. If if you if anyone else has a Thomas Carlyle question, or if uh Char Chandler, if you want to put another question, I'll I'll go to it. Um, it, in other words, a question on the French Revolution and Carlyle, mm-hmm. since Time and Ben are familiar with that. Uh, well, let me do this. We, we've been going over an hour and, um, there, I don't think we have any, I think I've gone through the questions. There's kind of a war erupting in the chat. Uh, I'm not exactly (laughs) sure where this came from, but it it, it looks like it's about women keeping silent in church and divorce and marriage (laughs) and, and all kinds of things. But, uh, yeah, not not what we're talking about here today. So well, that's great. I, I, I yeah. hope what I hope it's a productive conversation, whatever's going on there. Um I wanted to play a clip. Aristotle for... says
4: silence is the glory of women. So I don't know. <laughs> you just want to get in
1: trouble. That's what you want to do. Um, let's do this. There's a uh, I wanted to play this. This is from last night. Um did any of you guys watch the Republican debate or absolutely clips. Yeah, all right. Yeah, I, I didn't, I, I just watched clips, but um, I guess before the debate, I don't know if this was aired publicly or where this came from. It's it's a Republican Jewish organization, and I thought it fit so well. Uh, <laughs> I'm sorry, I have to just show this. Um, Aristotle is not Jesus. So I just wanted to clarify that for you, Timon. So um, you're on mute, so we can't even hear you. <laughs> it's a um,
4: Trump meme. It's the, this is the first I'm hearing of this. Yeah. Thank you.
1: <laughs> All right. So anyway, here, here's a uh, this is from last night and uh, I wanna play it and then just maybe any reflection you have on our liberalism discussion.
3: The RJC's work right now is more vital and important than ever. And that is why for the very first time in history of either party, the RNC has partnered with the Republican Jewish coalition to be part of our next debate in Miami.
4: The RJC is vital right now more than ever. We see the atrocities in Israel. We see attacks on our own streets. We need the Republican Jewish coalition taking a strong stance and we should stand with them.
0: The Democratic Party is divided and,
3: and has abandoned this cause. The Democratic Party, unfortunately, has turned its back on Israel. They are home to some of the most rabid anti-Semites in politics. We have to know the difference between good and evil, and I believe the RJC is going to be a big part of that. I think
4: that people who share the founding values of the United States of America and believe in the founding values of Israel as the Jewish state, Absolutely, should be voting Republican. If you
0: believe that the state of Israel uh, must be protected, the only way to make sure America
3: does that is to vote Republican. If you care about the safety and security of Israel, the only choice is to vote Republican. If you love freedom loving countries, if you believe in democracy, if you believe in pro American values, if you believe in the difference between right and wrong. You should be standing with Israel.
0: That also means that you stand with the RJC and you vote Republican.
3: I stand with Israel, the Republican Party stands with Israel, and that is why we need you to vote Republican.
1: Okay, I mean, the music just puts chills down your spine, makes you want to send Tom Cruise over there to bomb, you know, somewhere. Chris Christie looks so (laughs) bored.
2: What of I supposed to be saying.
1: Chris Christie doesn't know why he's running. He's like he has no idea. He's, he's just. I also oh,
4: hate. I hate skinny Ron DeSantis. I liked him when he was plump and uh, a little thicker. <laughs> the The, the dieted Ron DeSantis is less compelling.
2: I'll tell you what's going on here, John. Yeah, tell me. I was listening to a couple clips recently of well wealth, wealthy uh, Jewish leftist donors yanking the cord on their giving to Columbia and Harvard and other uh, Ivy League League institutions that they've literally given millions and at times billions to. And the the Republicans are like, there's these donors out there and they're Jewish and we're going to toot this horn and we're going to snatch them up. So it's literally like it's a political infighting between the, the Dems and Republicans over money. And and donors. That's a lot of it. Um, and you know, it's just it's just the war hawkishness as well. And it's just it's such an easy out. You know, Nikki Haley had this you know, brilliant line: "The difference between good and evil." It's like, wow, really? Never heard of such a thing. Come again? Uh, you know, it's 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 too easy to you know to to major on the Israel issue because to them it seems it allows them to not tackle the difficult issues at home.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, Vivek's, uh, I think that's how you say it, Vivek Ramswami, but his uh, line about the founding values of America and the founding values of Israel and defending those, that was the one that got me. And I thought oh, I should play this on our liberalism mm-hmm. discussion because uh, that's what we were talking about with Ukraine and Israel, that like the the war drums are to go there, or the, 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 the drumbeat is to go there because we are fighting a global war against the forces that would threaten democracy and threaten freedom. These very like nebulous kind of terms that we have such a strong emotional attachment to. And, and that becomes the liberal glue. That's the thing that like mobilizes a war effort. And, and you see it in that video, like the very inspirational music and just extremely simplistic moral, uh, uh, statements to for a country that is, I'm and nothing against Israel at all, but it's it is halfway across the world, and we have some severe problems of our own here, especially on our southern border right now, that we should be using those resources to stave. But we're going to instead talk about what we can do over there with the government's resources as if it's an obligation so, so, so it's yeah. like that's the liberalism yeah. thing it's like it's, it's right. that's the obligation not to our own but to well this protecting. this is the
4: thing i i said too when the um you know no one's talking about ukraine anymore you got to put up the new flag in your in your bio right ukraine's <laughs> old news um it's still going on as far as i know i assume taiwan's next and we can just have to try <laughs> great um you know, my, again, I, I think Israel has every right to do everything they're doing. Um, I think it's great. I, I Again, it's like that meme from the prosperity gospel preacher of Jesus. I see what you've given others and I want that for me. <laughs> like they're like they don't mess around. It's it's great. I think they should do it. Um, and if there is a geopolitical reason, real politic reason to support them in, in various ways because of other interests that we have, both whether it's whether it's in our relationship with them or, um, you know, the, the stability of the region, whatever you want to say. I am open to geopolitical arguments all the time. That's great. I wanted the same thing in Ukraine. No one could ever give it to you. It is totally a moral uh, you know, duty. And so th- that's that's one thing. But it connects to what um, I don't know if it was Nikki Haley or someone else saying this is just a, an, one of the most amazing statements. And I hadn't seen that till till now that I've ever heard, which is to be running for in the Republican primary. So you're not even the general yet in the Republican primary. And you say, if you want to defend Israel vote for me, and it's like, what, what country are you in? Like, what does that mean? What does that mean? I don't only makes
1: sense in liberalism. It It only only
4: makes sense in a liberal global order. I mean, it really does. That makes sense. Who would have ever made sense of that 200 years ago? What does that mean? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I went off
2: on Twitter like last week on on was it glenn beck who was talking no, about gosh. wanting dual citizenship with israel
1: no yeah yeah and, yeah, America. I, saw that. Yep.
2: and yeah. I thought this guy is is he is totally total post-war consensus liberal mm-hmm. brain you know he can't think he's he he's flagellating himself you know to 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 get Isra- israeli uh citizenship as if that makes him morally. Better or a, a bit greater ally? I don't know. It was to me, it was the epitome of just insanity. I mean, and you know, some of our listeners may not want to hear this, but um, you know, the founders would have been extremely opposed to any kind of dual citizenship. How are you, how are you going to give your loyalty to two different mm-hmm. countries halfway, you know, that that are separated by an ocean or something like that? That's a that's a, mm-hmm. insane. It's absurd. That's you know, it's not treasonous per se, but it's asking for that. Um, so yeah, I, I had some choice words on, on that whole thing. Um, but, uh,
4: yeah. yeah. And, well, and you said that the, the dual ahead. citizenship issue is the same original, um, you know, it's the impetus for, for Protestant problems with Catholics in America is they effectively have dual citizenship. So if you have any kind of foreign loyalty, um, it's, it's per se suspect. That's just strange. Like it, it doesn't mean you, you have to hate the, uh, the foreign loyalty they're talking about but it just doesn't make any sense for for national solidarity and and uh having you know true identity with your with your people so we've the what global liberalism has done is just completely uh exploded any kind of um any ability to think that way and is and almost has made it the the undercurrent of of this this clip is that that would be wrong that's morally wrong you need to do right. this, And they don't even appeal. That's what's amazing to me. They're Republican candidates. They don't even appeal to, to anything that's like, look, guys, um, you're nothing in those clips of, hey, um, Israel has been, we could say, generally a friend. This is about destroying radical Islam. And this is the vehicle to do it. Like, let's go help these guys out. we That's a huge threat to us. Islam is terrible. Let's go destroy it. They don't even say that. It's just this moral duty Israel israel no matter what I, I, this is just strange to me i have no yeah. it's like it, it's you know, is, israel
2: theory. therefore expand the franchise vote gop you know it right
1: it doesn't even it's make any goofy. sense and, both, i mean i think oh, you both like hamas that's what you're trying to say <laughs> that's what I'm Look, my view
2: my view on this is that <laughs> the, the the foreign the hawkish foreign policy that um in some ways is a consensus between the dems and the republicans mm-hmm. um although there's there is now a growing you know, dissent on the radical left of the democrats who are very pro-palestinian and they you know they've they've been raised and educated in all the crit stuff and you know they believe oppressor oppressed narratives and, and so forth um but uh you know the the kind of the consensus on the foreign policy to you know rush to israel's aid my view is actually that's a hindrance to israel and it's really what's going on is the United States is trying to run the show. And and it, it actually we should get out of Israel's way because we're creating more problems than we're helping. I mean, we're delivering bombs and munitions and things like that.
1: Um, well, I we also gave all that money to Iran, which purchased the weapons. And I mean, and we pledged, apparently has weapons that went to Ukraine from us. And oh, Biden right, pledged
2: yeah. 100 million humanitarian aid to the palestinians which you know is so fungible it's going to get turned right Right. around into missiles so the the american foreign policy is so schizophrenic there's deep infighting going on the republicans are using this as leverage against the democrats with their voter base war always is you know pads the the financial pockets of the elite Mm -hmm. so you know Mm -hmm. more war and more war. So these are a lot of the things interplaying and none of it's good for the American people. And it's actually not good for Israel either.
4: Yeah, that's right. Yeah. I think the best tweet I saw on any of this was, was Yoram Hazoni's like a couple weeks ago that just said, get out of the way and let us fight. And I was like, that's, that would be my, my total attitude on this. Uh, I think they're within their rights to do everything they're doing and it's going to be, it's going to be nasty, but they've got to respond with overwhelming force and it's totally defensive I'd say just get out of the way and, and let them take care of business. They, you know, they they have plenty of, they have more troops than we do. So they're good to go. Yeah. Well,
3: and
4: and call- none of their troops are, you know, like LGBTQ counselors and things like this. So they're <laughs> in much better shape.
1: I mean, you could hypothetically make a commercial like the one we just saw and talk about Israel's uh, extremely, um, uh, I guess, unrestrictive abortion laws, mm-hmm. their ext- extreme friendliness to, homosexuality. Um, You could talk about the fact, you know, how, when they've used pornography in the past as a a, a device in war to try to demotivate their enemies and stuff like that. So, I mean, there's plenty of things here that um, I I guess my only point is like there, there's evil. If you want to do the good evil thing, like you can find it on both sides as most conflicts, you can find good and evil on both sides. Like that's kind of the human condition, but we have a binary that we are are supposed to be completely allegiant to. Um, A few comments here. Uh, One, uh, Friedrichson says, I am a secular Jew and my Jewish friends hate me for saying that, but they do use Islam as a convenient way to use the U.S. Uh, Islam has never been a threat to the U.S. Well, I I don't know about that, but... It, 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 ask the people in Dearborn, Michigan, who who lived there thirty yeah, years. Yeah, I was going mean, to say. You anytime, know.
4: Look at Minneapolis. Uh, yeah,
1: I mean it is a threat, but it's not. Yeah, I mean it, it, m- perhaps the Warhawks overblow that to try to yeah. gain. um This is the best comment on the whole night. uh Hey, Timon, <laughs> go offer yourself as a ransom for the hostages in Gaza. Walk the <laughs> walk. Yeah, Timon.
4: And they've got a picture is this the birth- St Bartholomew's Day Massacre is their
1: Yeah, that is. Wow. wow. Here, this is a Christian mama. the Christian mama wow. wants you to go um she's walk hardcore. the walk. So All right. She's...
4: I don't know what that means, but
1: I don't know either, but it is my favorite <laughs> comment of the I do like
4: that comment. You should frame that one.
1: Yeah. Um and then uh, I I just have this is my second favorite comment uh, question. <laughs> John, (laughs) how many minutes would Tim Keller have lasted during the Civil War? So this is this is to me. So I would say, I I mean, I think about two because he would probably go on the (laughs) battlefield and try to do a third way thing and like be winsome with the other side. And he would just get blasted. So uh, (laughs) anyway. um, All right. Well, that's it for uh, our series uh, on liberalism. We end with a bang there. I uh, appreciate uh, Timon and Ben both giving me their time and and all of you their time. You can uh, follow them on Twitter. Uh, Timon's is uh, T L L O Y D, T Lloyd. Is that? That's right. Yep. All right. T Lloyd Klein, C L I N E. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's the Twitter handle. And then for Ben Crenshaw, Ben R Crenshaw on Twitter. Uh, wow, middle. you were the
4: OG Ben R. Crenshaw. That's I super am. convenient. Yeah, yeah,
1: nice. Imagine having the name John Harris, it's not fun. Like John <laughs> I mean, Harris, 5,320. Okay, all right, they, that one's <laughs> taken too. All right, I well, imagine
2: having the name Ben Crenshaw is a famous golfer.
1: Oh, I it's didn't, really I like was PGA that. golfer, yeah. man. He's won yeah. masters,
2: he's made
4: millions. He's my friend, you should have more followers.
1: <laughs> the convenient thing about that though of course is that you can say all kinds of politically incorrect things and they can't yeah. just google you and find it
4: yeah it's true because
1: it's true. they're going to come up with the golfer like yeah. you're going to be on like page nine of google with whatever you said yes, So that's true anyway including all right. this podcast <laughs> <laughs> this podcast it's buried already i mean they might be able to find me and timon but not ben crenshaw that's right All right. Well, God bless uh, everyone who's streaming out there. Thank you for uh, coming in the chat. We appreciate it. And uh, until next time, bye now.